This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by Audible.com. If you would like to support this podcast and start a 30-day trial membership, visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Season 11, Episode 23. This is Writing Excuses, the element of mystery. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're confused. No, wait, we're <laughs> puzzled. We're I don't know what the element of mystery is. <laughs> well, I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I think I'm Dan. And I'm we're not Howard. Sure. I'm very yeah. sure of that. <laughs> I may or may not be. Okay, mystery. Mystery is one of my absolute favorites because I don't think I've written a book that hasn't had some mystery in it. And it's really rare that I read a book that doesn't have some element of mystery in it. This podcast, we're going to talk about mystery as the main driving force for a story, as the, the super plot um, so what does that mean? What is a mystery as a novel form? It's a puzzle. Okay. And I think that's what draws me to mystery more than anything else is that thrill of solving a puzzle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that mysteries tend to start when the main character has a question. Mm. Um, and often it is, why is this dead body on the floor? Right. But it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. It could also be hanging from the ceiling. It could be. That's right could be in a closet. I mean, there's a lot of different places to right. put a body. <laughs> yeah. But. And we, we go to the body one. That's the most common that you will see. Right. When someone says mystery, it's a whodunit. Um, but one of my favorite science fiction writers is Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. And almost every Asimov story was a mystery. He yeah. would outline, here are the three laws of robotics. Oh, our robots are doing something screwy. Yeah. Why is this robot running in a perfect concentric circle yes. endlessly? Mm-hmm. And it's a mystery of putting together the clues with the information you have. It's, it really appeals to the mathematical side of your brain, but also to the exploration adventure side of your brain. You're going to discover something new. It's like the perfect genre. From the, from the writer's side of things, I think it was when Mary and Dan, you guys interviewed uh, David Brin, mm. and he said, uh, it, new writers, write a mystery. Mm. Sit down and write a mystery because, uh, because you're going to need that element in just about everything you do, you know, like, yeah. like you just, like you just said. And if you can pull that off, if you can build, build a story around giving us that sense of, oh, I solved it. Oh, I'm clever. Oh, the author is actually a little more clever than I am, but I'm still very satisfied. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can do that, uh, it's so useful, terribly useful. Now, what about the mysteries where you know the answer before the characters do? Have you ever read, read any of those? How did they work for you? The, those can work well. I've, there's a lot of uh, movies and yes, TV that series like to do this. that are like this. Um, there was a great TV show called The Fall with Gillian Anderson uh, where you know from the opening scene who did it. Mm-hmm. You know the bad guy she is chasing. And the mystery elements are how is she going to solve the clues? So does that change it from a mystery into an adventure? Or is it still just a different type of mystery? Well, I've, I've always thought that one of the differences between, for, for me, it would be um, mystery versus thriller. Mm-hmm. That one of the things that you're trying to provoke in the reader with the, the mystery is trying to figure out what's going to yeah. happen. And with a thriller, you know what's coming and it's the anticipation of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So with a, a mystery, 
the author needs to be one step ahead of the reader. And with a thriller, the reader needs to be one step ahead of mm. the character. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, horror, you're kind of on the same exact page, right. feeling the sense of dread as it yeah. as it manifests. That's, that's very in, interesting. In an ideal world, I think what you want, uh, like when I am reading a mystery, mm-hmm. um, the two things that I want are I want to try to puzzle it out with the yep. character. Mm-hmm. And feel like I have all of the tools that I need to try to puzzle it out. So that I'm in very similar character space, um, having a very similar character experience. But when they solve it just a moment before I do, mm-hmm. and it's that moment of, oh, of yeah. course. Right. Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate experience. Though yeah. I won't discount the you figure it out a page before the the character does yes. experience also, which can be really, really fun. And, and I think that that, element of ans- answering the question of solving the puzzle can still be there if you know who the killer is or you know yeah. the answer. Right. Because what you're really doing is you're going along with the character of saying, well, I know this guy did it, but how can I prove it? Mm. You know, there's been a lot of TV shows that have had that as their puzzle solving element rather than finding the bad guy, but convicting the bad guy. Watching uh, Bones... All mm-hmm. umpty whatever seasons. A of lot Bones. of the forensic shows are I, like this. Uh, a lot of forensic shows are like this. I like Bones because the science for me feel, even though the pace of getting results back is completely unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. It feels like it feels like science fiction to me because the science is a character, and yet at the heart of it, the whole time you're watching the show, uh, you're asking yourself, uh, you know. Who did it? You know, what are the clues going to lead to? But there's also the meta, mm-hmm. once you've watched a bunch of episodes, which is, okay, it's, they never, the, the person who did it is never somebody who's introduced in Act 4. Right. Who are the characters who were introduced in Act 1 who possibly could have done this? And I will start spinning on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just make one argument, though, that when we're talking about a, a, a mystery where we know the killer, bef- you know, or we know the answer mm-hmm. before the character— that that's a case where we're talking about bookstore genre, but when we're talking about elemental genre, the yeah. elemental genre of mystery, I I think one of the the parts of it is that it is a mystery to you too, to you the reader. Right. Yes. My, my argument is that it's a different kind of mystery. Okay. Fair. Mm-hmm. Fair point. That yeah, might actually be say- mystery as a subgenre, where what you're trying to the puzzle that you are solving is. How are they going to arrive at this piece yeah. of information? Yeah, that's probably what I'm that, trying to that say. That they can't possibly know. I yeah. know it, but they mm-hmm. can't possibly figure this out. Let's turn this back to a more standard mystery right, right. rather than the the tangent. Um, so, what kind of what other elements define it? Um, often, there's a body. Why is there usually a body in a mystery? It creates an immediate uh, question and immediate stakes. Because okay. if there's a body, then someone probably killed them, which means that you have a villain. Excellent. In yeah. the bookstore genre of mystery, I think it's because the shelf promised you that there would be a body. D- does that make sense? For the same reason there's a horse in a Western, it just it's it feels like it is so often there. It's probably because of the stakes, but it's it's very much expected in the bookstore genre. Right, but not at all necessary. Um, but I think the, the what it points us to is that in order for the mystery to be 
compelling. Right. There has to be something at stake yeah. involved mm-hmm. in solving it. It right. can't just be, well, this is an interesting question. I wonder why cats purr. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a question. <laughs> that's that's a gr- not a mystery. It really has to great be a point. compelling question that will keep you turning the pages. Yeah. But it also, I will say that it does not, interestingly, it does not have to be a personal stake necessarily for the main character. Sherlock Holmes being a prime example of this. Right. You know, he he. What he does is he solves mysteries. Right, but they raise the stakes in those in other ways. Right. Um, you can maybe have if you're not going to have it be something really um, a compelling consequence, then making the main character really involved in it yes. can make it equally powerful. Having a body raises the stakes enough for us that outside investigator can be like, oh, my job is to solve this. Plus, people will die. Yeah. I'm invested. Yeah. Well, and that's why one of the most common tropes that you'll see in, like, cozy mysteries and stuff is that we're all trapped here together. We're in a house all together. Mm-hmm. We're on a train all together. We know it's one of us, which gives you a compelling reason, and it also gives you a sense of danger. If I don't solve this soon enough, I might be next. Right. Let's go ahead and stop for our book of the week, and Mary is going to tell us about yes. it. The book of the week is Mrs. Roosevelt's Confidant. This is actually book five in a series, but you can read them out of sequence. Um, the reason I picked this one is that it's it's historical. It's set in uh, 1941, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and the main character is um, Maggie Hope. She's a special agent to Winston Churchill. She poses as a typist, and then she solves mysteries. It is – they are incredibly charming – um, well-written, beautifully paced, and and really very classic mysteries. Uh, this one, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt's Confidant, is by Susan Alaya McNeil, and it's narrated by Susan Derridan. Um, and you can pick up a copy at Audible uh, if you start a 30-day trial membership by going to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse, and you can grab a copy of Mrs. Roosevelt's Confidant as your first book. Excellent. Um, so let's dig into how you would go about planning or starting if you're a discovery writer. What, what would, how you jump into a mystery. You know, this genre, um, for a long time, I believe that people listed um, And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie as the best-selling novel of all time. It, I think, was eventually superseded by the Lord of the Rings books once the films came out and the sales of those. But for, for a long time, mystery was the most popular, the single most popular novel genre that had ever been. Mm-hmm. So there's something about this that people really, really love. How do you go about building one? Well, I think one of the things is, you know, you've got the question, but mm-hmm. when you pose a question, it has to be a question that has multiple possible answers uh-huh. uh, so that there is an uncertainty. Right. Um, which allows, so that the, because part of the, it is not just I answer this question and I answer that question and then and there we are. It's not a single chain. Right. For it is the un, the for me the thing about the mystery is the uncertainty. Well, in mm-hmm. each um step along the way, whenever whatever type of plot you're using. Um and mystery is the first one that we really have a definable here are the steps along the way because the steps along the way for a mystery are the clues, mm-hmm. right? Now, every story that you write of every elemental genre, you can substitute clue for something. It's just not as easily defined, but there's gonna, there are going to be these steps. Well, mystery, I like what Howard mentioned of saying to new writers, write a mystery, because those, you know, quantum, if you will, of those quanta of, a, of the story are so easy to think of. Okay, these are the clues that we'll have along the way. 
The trick is, tying into what Mary said, each of those clues needs to be fascinating in its own right. They need to change your conception of what's going on, uh, point you in multiple different directions, intrigue you. The clues need to be as interesting as the eventual resolution is. Yeah. I, uh, I'm intimidated by mystery, and I think it's because when I was 12, I picked up a paperback mystery that my grandfather had read, and on the first page, in his handwriting, was the names of all of the characters and page numbers, and as I flipped through the book, I realized, oh my gosh, he's taking notes. <laughs> he's, I was... I, and I thought that that was, that was how a mystery had to be. And I, I, I thought that it was just impossible to plan that far ahead. Um, and yet, uh, and, and yet the, his logic system, my grandfather would always find out who the killer was a page before it was revealed because that was the clue mm-hmm. that finally narrowed it down from, from three to one or from two to one or whatever. Um, building that, I mean, if you want to build it mathematically, I'm sure you can <laughs> in the same way that you'd create a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku, but th- that doesn't feel yeah. like With Agatha Christie, storytelling. Uh, Agatha Christie said, and I'm paraphrasing wildly, um, she was apparently a seat of the pantser. Mm. And so when she started, she said that at the beginning of the book, anyone could have done it mm. mm-hmm. and that she doesn't know until the end which of them and so she starts narrowing mm-hmm. it down as she writes she says yeah. okay i'm going to make a clue that makes it so it couldn't be this person yeah um that's really interesting for I, me in developing a, a mystery one of the things i look for are the red herrings i say what's the reader going to assume because i assume it taking away my knowledge um and then i try to make sure that those red herrings are legitimate at least for part of the story mm-hmm. because if i'm assuming it and the reader's going to assume it. It's good for the characters to assume it and start investigating that way until they hit that, that brick wall. But hopefully the brick wall isn't just a brick wall, but it is a, an opening toward, okay, if this isn't the case, what we always assumed, something else is going on. What piece did we miss? And it can be a really mm-hmm. interesting subplot to do that. I played a house, How to Host a Murder once where I was the murderer and I didn't know it because that page was stuck together. And I just flipped past it, and I'd never <laughs> played the game before. And so, and people kept accusing me of having done it. And I got way into character and was very passionately telling stories about how, no, there's no way. I'm not Tarzan. I couldn't have gone between those balconies in the rain. What are you, what are you thinking? Yes, I climb mountains. I would never try that. They didn't pick me. We got the wrong person. It was like, well, okay, well, who is the murderer? I don't know. And they look at my book. Howard, you were the murderer the whole time and you didn't know. No, I, I actually didn't. But as we went back and put the clues together, we realized, oh, I, I, because I didn't know, I lied so effectively that I, that I puzzled it. It's not that the clues didn't drop. So right. when, you talk about, uh, when you talk about red herrings, um, that's, for me, that's the most fun, is presenting something so convincingly that it that it throws yeah. you. Now, see, when I plot a mystery, and writing mysteries is what taught me to start at the end. So I will figure out what the solution is, and then I love to just kind of make a list of what are the clues that are going to make this obvious. And then work backwards from there and say, well, if I take out this one clue, the five that are left, who do they point to? And then I take out one of those, the four that are left, who do they point to? 
and then throw in some extra red herrings and things and make sure that there's some other clues in there that you totally don't even notice until way late in the book. And that gives you a good way of keeping that believability that Mary was talking about. Mm. That even when you only know two clues, you're pretty sure that those two clues point to character X and it's plausible. Yeah, we should actually probably, just for people who are not familiar, define red herring. Go for it. So red herring is basically a false clue. It mm-hmm. is something that looks like it. it is a plausible clue. It, it is actually a clue, mm-hmm. but yeah. that the um, the you draw the wrong conclusions from it. Um, and it's there are a lot of different ways to plant it. Um, one of the the very mechanical useful tricks for uh, for for planting a clue mm-hmm. and having readers just gloss over it, we tend to notice the first thing in a list and the last thing in a list. Right. Um, and the things in the middle take on less importance. So if you want to plant a clue and you don't want to draw attention to it, then yeah. you put yeah, it in the put middle in of the, middle. the list. Another really good way of doing that is to give the clue, but think have the characters think that it points to the wrong thing. Well, yeah. or or to give a give a clue, but make sure that that clue is important for completely unrelated reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so the, the reader yeah. can think. Oh, he's telling us this because of some other thing that has nothing to do with our mystery. Yeah, yeah. There's a dog hair found at the scene. Oh, that must have come off the clothing of the murderer who owns a dog. Yeah. No, the dog was actually in the room. Mm. The the uh, Harry Potter books are all mysteries. They're all constructed yep. like mysteries. Mm-hmm. And she is brilliant at that, at con- showing you, here's an awesome new magic thing that's fun and it's cool and it has to do with this subplot. Oh, and also at the end, we find out that it has to do with the main plot as well. All right. I have to call the discussion here, though it's going very well. We will talk more about mystery in a couple of weeks. But for now, Howard has some homework for us. I do. Um, for you, Seed of the Panthers, this may be very difficult. For you, Outliners, this may be equally difficult. I want you to create a crime. Start with, not in real life, please. <laughs> Just stay at the keyboard um, and create a crime scene. Create a create a crime that where you know who's done it, you know what's been done, and start leaving the clues and work your way backwards through the criminal's path, through the victim's path, uh, whatever, and lay clues and then start removing the clues that people wouldn't notice uh, so that you are building, you're essentially building the framework for a mystery, which you could then later wrap prose around. Right. So outline backward. Outline it backwards. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. 
They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.